So today we're going to start uh, a series going through the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus. We went through Genesis a couple of years ago, I think it was now. Um, and so I thought it would be nice to go back and pick up where we left off in Genesis and start with Exodus. But today we will not actually be in Exodus. Do some background work and lay some basic foundation so that starting next week we can hit the ground running in Exodus 1 verse 1 and kind of know what we're doing when we do that. Why do I say that? I say that because uh, there are a lot of ways that we approach the book of Exodus that uh, leave us hungry. A lot of ways that we approach the Old Testament, the Bible in general, but especially the Old Testament, and very often Exodus, ways that we approach it wrongly such that we're not getting the food out God wants us to get out of it. There's at least a couple ways we do this. One way is we look to the Bible for self-empowerment. We look to the Bible to see what's in there about how I can be the best version of me. And so, ha, look at Israel how they failed. I need to be better than that. Look at Israel how they grumbled. I need to not grumble. Look how Israel how they didn't have faith. I need to have faith. It's be braver. Be stronger. Um, be all that you can be in God's army. Right? Uh, but that's, that's not the message of the book of Exodus, nor is that the message of the Old Testament or the Bible. It's not that we shouldn't strive in holiness and that we, sh- yes, we shouldn't grumble and we, sh- we shouldn't complain and we should uh, trust in the Lord our God. We should do those things. But the message isn't, you can do it. Go ahead. Go do it. Look how they failed, but you're not them. No, no, no. The message is, you are them. And you can't do it unless God steps in. So rather than approaching Exodus and going, hmm, where am I? Where am I in here? Let me see. Where, who's the hero of this story? Let me find out how I'm that hero today. The hero of the story is God. And we can't be him. We need him, but we're not him. A second way that we go astray in reading a book like the book of Exodus is uh, spiritualizing everything to fit my particular need of the day, right? Um, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm struggling at work because my boss, uh, you know, he's terrible. He, he rules with an iron fist. He overmanages. He nitpicks, and he's driving me nuts. And then we come to Exodus. And we read the story about Pharaoh and how he was a nitpicky, you know, dictatorial, you know, despot that kind of ruled with a, with a hard, you know, an iron fist. And he would go, yeah, or maybe we go to church sometime, somewhere, or we turn on the TV and the TV preacher tells you, who's the negative Pharaoh in your life? You know, kind of putting you down and keeping you from the success that God wants you to have. Uh, speak to that Pharaoh and say, let my job go or something, you know. You're going to encounter a difficulty this week. This week, a difficulty that causes you to doubt the success that God has promised you in your life. Something about your marriage. Something about your kids. Something about your job. You'll get that better job. You'll get that better job. Don't let someone tell you no. When someone tells you no, they're your Red Sea. That's the Red Sea that you're up against. What did Moses do? He stretched out his arms and he claimed God's power over that Red Sea. So just pray. Stretch out your arms and pray God's power over that job. 
Or pray God's power over that obstacle. Pray God's power over that thing in your life that's bothering you. That's us uh, taking the text and mangling it to fit our agenda. The things that bother me. I'm upset about work. I'm, not, I'm upset about my marriage. I'm not liking how things are going with my kids. I'm not liking how things are going in my community. I'm not liking this. I'm not liking that. Let me take scripture and turn it into an analogy to make me feel better about this. But that's not clinging to the promises of scripture. That's taking scripture and making your own promises out of it. Then what happens? Did God promise to give you a better job? Is Exodus really about making sure that your marriage has no hiccups whatsoever? Does Exodus promise that your kids will never rebel, never give you a hard time? No, Exodus doesn't promise that. So when we do that and we go, God, I'm reading Exodus and here's the pharaohs in my life and here's the Red Seas in my life. Here's the wilderness I feel like I'm in and you're not getting me through the other side. What happened to your promise? When something hits really hard, you end up in the hospital or worse yet, someone you love is in the hospital. That's the moment where you go, man, God, I thought you said this. And it's not happening in my life. And the message is, I didn't say that. Because your problem is not the hospital. Your problem is not your job. You have a much more profound problem than the things that disrupt your peace from day to day. It's not that those are not difficult situations. Please hear me right. Those are difficult situations, but that is not our ultimate need. We have a much more profound need that Exodus certainly addresses loudly. And to see that, we're going to go to Genesis chapter 3. So if you don't have a Bible, please slip your hand up and we'll make sure we get you one. We want to make sure you're on the same page with us, literally. We, I want you to see what we see in the passage and not just take my word for it. So Genesis chapter 3. What does this have to do with the book of Exodus? Well, Exodus is a sequel, and we're looking at the prequel, right? We're looking at some that we need to have in mind before we get to Exodus so that we don't take Exodus and do what we want with it and then end up having no power for Christian living. Genesis chapter 3 records the fall. Genesis, the first book in the Bible, if it's been a long time or... Maybe this is your first time in, in God's Word. First book of the Bible, three chapters in. The fall happened. God created Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve sinned. The serpent came and tempted Eve, and Eve was deceived, and Eve gave in. And it looks like the text is saying Adam was right there. He was right there because all she did was pass fruit. Okay. And then he falls, but he knew. Now they're both in this fallen situation. And then God finds them in their fallen state and he rolls out curses to the serpent, to the woman, and then to the man. I want to look at this curse to the serpent in verse 14. Now we've been here before, it's been a while, but we've been here before and I've showed you the different places in scripture where it's clear the serpent is Satan. This isn't a, a talking snake like at Sesame Street and it's just a random, you know, one of God's animals that went rogue. This is, this is Satan using an animal to deceive. Um, and that's, that, those connections are made throughout Scripture. 
the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So, so far, it sounds like he's just talking to the animal. The actual animal, the snake, is going to get, get cursed because of this. Um, so th- those of you who own snakes in your little aquariums and you feed them rice and, mice and stuff, you know, uh, you know, be reminded of this, <laughs> this verse. I don't get it, but, you know, God bless you. Um, <laughs> but, you know, pop out Genesis 3.15 and do a little Bible study in, in front of the aquarium. You know? But then eerily, weirdly, oddly, subtly, he switches, and suddenly you look up, you're like, I don't think he's talking about the snake anymore. On your belly you shall go, and eat, uh, and thus shall you eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The first problem, if he's just addressing us, snakes in general, is snakes aren't really our, our problem. Fallenness is our problem, and the temptation that brought them to bite the fruit of pride, that's our problem. And God is going to lay out a plan going forward that addresses this problem. The way many of us read the Bible sometimes, it's here we have the fall. Fall happens. God goes, oh, man, I made man, I made woman, everything was perfect, and then it messed up. Sin entered the world and messed everything up. And then a long excursus, right, a, a, a sidetrack of, okay, Abraham, and then people, and then Israel, and then a land, a lot of blood, a lot of fighting, a lot of killing, laws, okay, law didn't work, and then finally, in Matthew, here's the answer, you know, no, the answer has been spelled out all the way, and we don't leave this curse before we see it. I'll put enmity between you and the woman when you connect that serpent with who's behind the serpent, you're going to see that what, what God is laying out here is this is going to be a perpetual battle. I'm going to leave Satan here. He's, he's the prince of this domain. Him and his, and his fallen angels, they're, they're going to roam around like, like prowling, roaring lions looking for someone to devour. That's what they're going to do. That's what he's about. You see that in Job. Satan, what are you up to? Well, I'm walking around the earth. What is he walking around the earth? Trying to pick fights with people like Job. Right? This is what he does. So I will put enmity between you and the woman. Notice that God doesn't say, oops, I didn't see this coming. Looks like there's going to be enmity. This isn't a forecast where the meteorologist kind of, I don't know, like this gust is coming. I think this is what's going to happen. I will put enmity between you and the woman. So This is God's plan. It's not God reacting to something that went off the rails. It's God's providence. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, or some of your translation may say, in between your seed and her seed. Now, when you look at that and you go, between snake eggs and babies? Like, what, what are you talking about here? If, if, if this is Satan, what we, know, what we know from scriptures, angels, fallen or not, they don't procreate. Satan's not having little Satan juniors running around. There's nothing in Scripture about any of that. So how in the world does he have offspring? And how is his offspring at enmity with her offspring? 
Well, we know that it's not a physical offspring, it's not a physical lineage, but a spiritual lineage. You remember in John 8, Jesus is talking with the Pharisees. They're completely incorrigible. You can't convince them. They're stuck. And he talks about Father Abraham, and they say, Father Abraham, that's our father. He says, no, it's not. Verse 44, your father is the devil. Because he was a murderer from the beginning, and that's what you want to do to me. He was a liar from the beginning, and that's what you're spewing out of your mouth. The Pharisees were his spiritual offspring. When you read passages like 1 John 3, 12, uh, John talks about Cain, and he says Cain is of the evil one. Then in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews refers to Abel as righteous. So right there, right with their first two kids, Cain and Abel. One of them has the, Satan as his father. He's the offspring of Satan, spiritually speaking. And one is righteous and is of the Lord. So the offspring of Satan are those who conspire against God's people, reject God's truth, and those who are the offspring of her truly are those who hold to God's covenant promises. Then you'll notice he switches from the plural to the singular. This is interesting. Your offspring, all your offspring versus all his offspring. But then he makes it singular. And he, the one, will bruise your head. And you, singular, will bruise his heel. So the he here is put first because it's in an emphatic position. This is the one who's going to dominate. He's going to bruise your head. Logically, you would say, he bruises your heel, that's a cheap shot, and it hurts, but it's not fatal. He's going to deliver the fatal blow to your head. You'd think that would come second. If you're just putting it first, because he's the victor. This he is the victor. This ultimate he from her seed is the one who wins out over Satan's temptations, over Satan's plan to derail God's plan, over Satan's schemes. He puts an end. This he will put an end to Satan's prowling. Roaring, snatching, devouring, that will be done with. If you read the book of Revelation, the dragon comes out of the sea to do his work. Uh, the author of Revelation, John, tells us that when Mary gave birth to Jesus, the dragon was right there trying to snatch that baby as soon as it was born. didn't work because that he is Christ. And from this point on, from Genesis 3.15 forward, What we have is a development, an unfolding of God's plan to fulfill Genesis 3.15. His promise in Genesis 3.15 is that there's going to be enmity for a while. There's going to be a battle for a while. That battle is going to culminate between an individual person from from her seed who will finally put an end to the onslaught of Satan, the evil one. So we see that confirmed in places like the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 3, Jesus, his lineage traces all the way back to Adam. Other Gospel writers trace it back you know, to David or whatever. Matthew traces Jesus' lineage, son of this, son of that, son of that, son of that, all the way back to Adam. Right? It's like he's dropping the hint. Remember back in Adam's day, some, some he was promised? That's this guy. Then chapter 4 starts, and how does Luke chapter 4 start? As soon as he finishes that lineage, tracing Jesus back to Adam, chapter 4 starts 
And Jesus immediately goes into the wilderness to do battle with Satan. And he wins. So there's no doubt, there's no question who this he was. We don't have to wonder, is it a general he? Is it me? No, it's not me. It's not you. It's the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the one that's prophesied throughout the entire Old Testament and then uh, manifested in the New Testament. So many have called this the proto-gospel, the first gospel that you find in the Bible is Genesis 3.15. So when we go to a place like Exodus, we have Genesis 3.15 in the background. It's not a random story about slaves and how they built pyramids and who the Pharaoh was. Those are interesting facts, but those, those are not the point. The point of the rest of Genesis, Exodus, the whole first five books, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the whole point of the Old Testament, the prophets, point of the wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, all of them, the point of it is Jesus. We have this running joke, the Sunday school answer when you're in doubt, just say Jesus in Sunday school. Jesus, most of the time your answer is going to be right. We crack jokes about that, right? But it's true. It's true. Jesus came alongside two disciples walking to Emmaus, and they're, they're bummed. Jesus, oh, this Messiah came and died, but they don't recognize that it's Jesus, right? And he comes alongside them, and he's, he's listening, he's hearing them out. What are you guys down about? This is the Lucas version. Right? What are you guys down about? What's got you bummed? Oh, this is Jesus. He was awesome. Phenomenal teacher. Oh, healed people. He was great. Oh, took on the Pharisees. We, we loved it. It was awesome. He, he took on everybody, man. He was just so great. And then, then he died. They killed him. We're just really bummed about that. And he's like, Jesus, told, you're so foolish. And slow of heart to believe what Scripture told you was supposed to happen. You can lead someone to Jesus and explain the entire gospel without the New Testament. That's what Jesus told them. You were supposed to see that this thing on the cross was supposed to happen. That he was supposed to be pierced and bruised for our iniquities. That by his stripes we would be healed. And then... He proceeded to explain to them from all of Scripture the things that were taught concerning him. What Scripture did they have? Matthew wasn't written yet, right? Paul wasn't saved yet. The Scripture that he walked them through was the Old Testament. And what Luke tells us is in all of the Old Testament Scriptures, Jesus showed those two disciples all the things that the Old Testament taught concerning him. What about Ruth? Yeah, from Ruth. What about Esther? Yes, from Esther. What about Job? All those arguments and he's suffering. It's about Jesus, ultimately. Ultimately, it points to the solution to our ultimate problem, which Genesis 3.15 offers. So we have this gospel unfolded. We fast forward to Abraham. Quickly, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 12. A couple verses there, and then a couple verses in Genesis 15. God is taking sort of a, uh, he's, he's narrowing the approach. He's narrowing the field to a particular people that are going to come from Abraham. And if you look in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, God says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, 
and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How are all the families going to be blessed by Abraham's people? Because they're the ones through whom the Messiah would come. They're not special. There's nothing in this text that said, so he found this guy Abram, right? And he was so amazing. Abram was so amazing. God was like, here's the guy. No, we don't know anything about Abram. He's just like, uh, pluck. It's what he's going to do with Abram that counts, not how great Abram is. So he chooses Abram. Now, Abram, he's not, you know, some spiritual bum. He, he's commanded to go out in the country, and by faith, he does that. And then once that happens, we see in verse 5 where he goes. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, all their possession that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. If you look at verse 10, there was a famine in the land. Okay? And so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there because the, the famine was severe in the land. Then look at 17. He does this weird deal with his wife. Hey, pretend like you're not my wife so they don't kill me. And then, then you know, the Pharaoh is like, oh, she's beautiful. But then he's uh, like, you know, he, he's spared by God's grace. He gets upset about it. And then verse 17, it says, The Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you've done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? I almost, I almost took her for my wife. Take her and go. So what you have here in this last section of chapter 12 is Israel's patriarch experiencing famine and because of famine goes to Egypt to find food and in Egypt gets oppressed, Abram's fault in this case, but gets oppressed by Pharaoh. God sends plagues on Pharaoh and then Pharaoh says, take your wife and get out of here. That's the book of Exodus. It's a preview. God is just kind of warming up, right? Here's a little microcosm of what you're going to see in the book of Exodus. You flip over to chapter 15. Genesis 15. We normally don't do Bible drills like this, but this will be our last passage to turn to. Genesis 15, 12 to 14, right? A little small chunk there toward the end of that chapter. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring, so here we are tracking with that offspring again, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. There's a biblical promise to embroider on a pillow right? Here you go, Abram. Here's my first promise to you, you know, or second. You know, the first one was like, hey, you're going to go to this land and everything. And now he's making it a little more specific. Your offspring, they're going to go to a foreign land that's not theirs, and they're going to be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So as we read that verse, we see that when we get to the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus is something that God 
set up. The book of Exodus is not describing you know, God being distant or quiet for a long time. God is napping. He's sleeping. He's unknowing. He's not sure. His arm is too short. It takes him 400 years to come up with a, a, a bailout plan. You know, no, he called it. And it's not like he called it like, I think this is pretty much what's going to happen. He said, this is my plan. This is what I want for you. And there's Different reasons that the Bible supplies for that. First of all, the, the Canaanites were not ready to be booted yet. Their wickedness wasn't up to the level of, of just completely wiping them out. And it was going to take another 400 years for that to happen. So we have that. But even deeper than that is God setting up a plan that would serve as a picture of the gospel. The book of Exodus is a display of the gospel. The book of Exodus is a picture, an analogy. I mean, it really happened, but it, that happenings, the way God unfolded all of that with Israel was to serve as a picture to help us understand how God is going to fulfill Genesis 3.15. When we miss that, all we're left with is kind of paltry applications about... Um, praying harder for God to split open seas, um, you know, not worshiping idols and being more faithful. I mean, that's true. But that misses the ultimate point. When we leave Exodus, we're doing a devotions in Exodus, let's say, and we close the Bible and go, okay, I'm going to go do this now. I'm going to go be awesome. We, we miss it. Because we can't go be awesome, and then we fail, and we come back, and we feel like God left us hanging, or we feel like, how come I'm not good enough? How come I'm not getting this? That's because we're importing our broken inability to do things without God. Like, we're coming to God's Word for tips on how to be a better version of myself, but that, that's not the Bible's message. The Bible's message is, this is not here to give you a boost to help you be a better version of you. What you need to do is completely surrender yourself. Recognize you're nothing but a slave in bondage and you can't get yourself out unless I send the mediator and do something about it. If I don't do something about it, you're dead. If I don't save that baby floating in the river, you guys are dead. If I don't appear to him in a burning bush and, and command him to go get you guys, you're dead. If I don't split open the Red Sea, you're dead. If I don't block them with a pillar of fire, you're dead. If I don't bring you fire in the middle of the cold desert night, you're dead. If I don't provide a cloud over you in the hot desert sun during the day, you're dead. If I don't rain bread down on the ground, you're dead. If water doesn't come out of a rock, you're dead. So it's no surprise when we get to Romans 6 and Paul tells us, the problem, guys, is we're dead. We're dead to God. And we can't do anything. This is what God communicated to Elijah in the, the, the valley of the dry bones. Hey, um, can these bones come to life? And, you know, he's like, oh, I really don't want to answer that. It sounds like a trick question. I don't want to mess with God. You know, just you tell me, right? If I breathe life, they will. And the bones can't do anything of their own. And so the ultimate reason why we have the book of Exodus, the ultimate reason why he even sets this up, look, they're going to be slaves for 400 years so that he can show not just Israel but us what it means to be in bondage and how you get out.
to recognize that we're in bondage, and to recognize that we need to get out, and only God can do that. I said that Exodus is a picture of the Christian life. And I want to kind of walk through some of the highlights of the book of Exodus so we can see that. If you were uh, describing the life of an Israel, uh, Israelite back then in the book of Exodus, here's how you might describe their life. Okay. They were in bondage. They could do nothing about except call upon the Lord. And they did. In order to be delivered, they needed a trust in the blood of the Lamb. God raised up a mediator to lead them out of their bondage. Then they're in the wilderness where they're free, but it's, it's tough going. They're on their way to the promised land, but they're not there yet. They were given God's word to guide them and instruct them in how to live. They were given the tabernacle, God's dwelling, God's indwelling presence there. Because if he does not go with them, they will fail. Now, an Old Testament scholar, J. Alec Mateer, has, has mentioned that that's exactly how a Christian would describe their life. <laughs> I was in bondage. I couldn't do anything about it until I called upon the Lord and he saved me. I, in order to be saved, I needed to trust in the blood of the Lamb. God raised up a mediator, Christ, to lead us out of bondage. We're in the wilderness now. We're not done. We still wrestle with sin. We still struggle with things. It's tough. But we trust in him, and he will get us there to the promised land. How is he going to get us there? He gives us his word to guide us, instruct us, teach us about himself, to show us how to live. And he gives us his indwelling presence, not in a tent, but in us, so that he can get us home. That's why Paul describes the Holy Spirit as the seal, the deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. God's presence guarantees going to the promised land. Not law-keeping. So we look at the story of Exodus. How do we not see us there? You see, the solution is not to not see us there. We do see us there, but we don't see us there as the heroes of the story. We see us there as receivers, the the beneficiaries of the hero who's God, first of all, and the ultimate better mediator than Moses, Jesus, as the author of Hebrews puts it. Moses was great. Jesus was better. So Exodus is about bondage and deliverance. It's not mainly about how to be a better person. I love this quote from Anthony Salvaggio in one of his commentaries on this passage. He says, the only way to move from bondage to liberation is for God to intervene. There it is. The only way to move from bondage to liberation is for God to intervene. That's the point of Exodus. So I recognize that I can't deliver myself. And I do need a mediator. But Moses wasn't good enough. And guess what happened to Moses? He died. So you have God and you have his covenant people, but you need a mediator to get them to God. And Moses wasn't good enough. None of the priests were good enough. They all died. They all had issues. Moses didn't even get to see the promised land. So what we need is the mediator that was originally promised in Genesis 3.15. And maybe some of those folks then, when they were churning mud with their feet, and they were thinking, it's year 399, he said 400, it's got to be coming soon. Is he the one that will crush the head of the serpent? Is David the one? Is Elijah the one? No, no, no. Matthew chapter 1. 
right? The Messiah is born. So Jesus isn't just the answer to Exodus. Jesus fulfilled Exodus. Okay? Now I want to take a couple minutes here to walk you through why Jesus is not just the answer to the problem that we see in Exodus. He is Exodus. Israel's in Egypt, right? Israel's in Egypt, and their mediator escapes the slaughter of all the sons. You remember that? They're going to slaughter all the babies, and somehow Moses, who will be the mediator, escapes in Egypt from that tyrannical ruler. How did the gospel start out? Jesus is in Egypt to escape the slaughter of the sons of Israel by a tyrannical ruler. Right? Jesus is living out, literally, the story of Exodus. God tells Pharaoh in Exodus, God tells Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Let them go or I'll kill your firstborn son. That's Exodus chapter 4. Israel is my firstborn son. Let them go or I'll kill your firstborn son. Well, in Matthew chapter 3, you remember when Jesus is baptized and he comes out of the water and God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Israel came out of Egypt and crossed through the water. They came out of Egypt and they passed through the Red Sea and they crossed through the water. In the Gospels, as soon as Jesus emerges from the baptismal waters, he immediately goes into the wilderness. I mean, it's exact. Israel emerges from the Red Sea. They finish crossing the Red Sea. They go into the wilderness. Jesus enters into the wilderness. Israel experiences hunger in the wilderness. You remember the whole manna thing, right? They experience hunger in the wilderness. Jesus fasts for 40 days. And then Matthew tells us after he tells us he fasts for 40 days, Matthew says he was hungry. And you read that and you're like, who wouldn't be hungry? He's fasted for 40. Like, you don't have to tell me that. There's a lot of, you know... (laughs) There's limited parchment, Matthew, you know, like give us other details that wouldn't be so obvious. He's not telling us because we wouldn't know he would be hungry after 40 days. He's telling us because he's trying to remind you of the wilderness experience. If you were reading that as an, as an Israelite, you would go, ah, wilderness, hunger, right. Israel went in the wilderness and failed. Jesus goes in the wilderness and succeeds. How does he succeed in the wilderness? In the wilderness, Israel put the Lord God to the test. Exodus 17. We're going to see that. Israel put God to the test again. Jesus is tempted to put God to the test, and he says, no, you shall not test the Lord your God in the second temptation. Israel came to a mountain, Mount Sinai, and there they turned from the Lord and they worshiped an idol. Jesus comes to a mountain where Satan shows him all the kingdoms, and Jesus says, no, only the Lord is to be worshipped. It's like he's undoing the failures of Israel in the wilderness. At a mountain, Moses gives the law to the people, right? You remember Charlton Heston with the tablets? <laughs> On a mountain, he gives the law to the people. One of the first things we do see in Matthew 5, Jesus standing on a mountain, and he gives his most famous sermon to the people. You've heard the law say it like this. I'm telling it to you like this. He's not undoing the law. He's fulfilling the law. And he's fulfilling the book of Exodus. Guys, I know it's a little heady and, you know, a lot of notes and it's a long walkthrough. What I'm trying to communicate 
that when we walk through the book of Exodus, it's not a cheap Sunday school answer to say, oh, the answer is Jesus. That needs to be the answer because the answer certainly isn't me. If I, if I go through the book of Exodus and go, oh, I, I need to do better, I need to be better, I'm already starting on the wrong foot. I need to approach the book of Exodus and go, oh, my goodness, it's not Israel was so bad. Look at me, how I can handle the wilderness. It's illness was, Israel was bad in the wilderness, and so am I. I would be no different than Israel. I am no different than Israel. How long does it take us? We come here, we gather, we sing these awesome things about God, and we go out there and temptation comes knocking. How long does it take before we just fall flat on our faces again? We can make fun of Israel for their silly gold calf. Why would you, why would you, ha <laughs> ha, so dumb. <laughs> why would you craft a gold calf out of earrings and start worshiping me? It's so stupid. Take an Israelite, put him in a time machine, and bring him here to us today to see what we worship. Phones. Tablets, statuses. Who's following me, you know? We do silly things. We spend our times in ways that could be spent a little better, a little bit more worshipfully. We allow culture around us to define who we are instead of letting God's word define who we are as his covenant people. We're no better than Israel. And in light of what we have in the clarity of the gospel in the New Testament, we're worse than Israel. But our advantage is we're not in the past looking forward, hoping for a Messiah to come. The mystery has been revealed to us. And so the answer is not to approach Exodus and go, how can I be better? The answer is to approach Exodus and go, how has Christ secured this for me so that I can live how he wants me to live? And that sounds really similar to to you. The implications are not, right? You have two people that read the Bible, and one of them says, okay, I'm going to do better here. I see that I'm supposed to be like Moses here. Okay, I'm going to be Joshua and Caleb. I'm not going to be these other people. And then you go and you, you struggle and you have that roller coaster experience of Christianity. And those roller coasters, because the ups are your strength, you're up, you're feeling good, circumstances are good, worship was great. And then the down is because you're feeling down and you're feeling depressed. Your spirituality is based on your, your energy, your feeble you know, emotions, whether they're up or whether they're down, whether you're seeing the dots connecting or you feel like life is confusing right now. The other person reads the book of Exodus or any part of the Old Testament or the Bible for that matter. Instead of saying, I see how I'm supposed to be a better person as I read this, they're saying, I see how I am like Israel and I am in complete bondage and I'm still, even though I've been freed, I'm still like that alignment in the car. If, 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 I let, if, if God lets go of the wheel here, I'm always going to go right into the median. I, I need God to step in and deliver me, not just out of Egypt, but through this wilderness experience so that I get to the promised land. God needs to do that. He's the one that provides what I need for me to be able to do that. What I need to do is trust in him, not in my ability to be a great wilderness traveler. And I think what we have in many churches, and I'm sure all of us fit that bill at one time or another, is a real tired, exhausted version of Christianity because we're still running on our own gas. 
rather than understanding that our tank is empty, I don't know how far to go with that analogy. God's about to become like a pump attendant, so I didn't want to, let's not go there. But God intervenes, God steps in and does what needs to happen to regenerate us and make us into the people we need to be, which is very different than kind of muscling up, right? Picking ourselves up by the bootstrap and let's go be holier. As we want to be holy, we're supposed to be holy, but we can't on our own strength. So what Exodus is going to do to us is strip us down of the self-empowerment model and instead replace that with a God-dependent model. A world of difference. Instead of a frustrated Christianity, you have freedom in Christ to grow in Him. And so when temptation comes knocking, you're not on your own strength. You're wearing God's armor, right? It's God's armor, Ephesians 6, to have victory in your life. If you're in here this morning, you're a Christian, where you're battling with things, and it's been a long time, and these are the same temptations. They come, they knock, and they take you out every time. God has made a promise for that. He called it in Genesis 3.15 that that enmity would be there. But then he also gave the solution, and the solution is not try harder. More accountability partners. Double your Bible reading. Hey, those things are helpful as fences. But the power is not in an accountability partner. The power is not in just banging through scripture verses. The power is in the gospel of Jesus Christ and recognizing, ah, the story of Jesus in the wilderness is not about how to conquer Satan. The story of Jesus in the wilderness really is about how Jesus conquered Satan. Not memorize more scripture to attack Satan, but know Christ to survive the wilderness. If you're in here this morning and you don't know the Lord, please talk to one of us. Any one of us that's up here, someone wearing a green lanyard, we want to walk you through the gospel so you can understand it. But I think this is just as relevant for struggling Christians who need to not see the gospel as something you learn in a Sunday school one day and then put behind you and then you just graduate onto deeper things. Once you move past the gospel, you've already gone off track. The gospel is everything. It's what we need every day. It is our manna.